This is the Baltimore, 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 Baltimore Underground Radio Podcast. Showcasing local musicians, playing songs, and getting the interview. We'll also bend your ear about gear. Baltimore, we are sick with talent. Put your ears on. It's time to listen. In today's episode, host Bronson Hoover will be interviewing Scott Painter, lead singer for Baltimore's own reggae band, Jawworks. Take it away, Bronson. Rated triple R for language. Raucous, raunchy, and real. Today I am sitting down with the heartbeat of Baltimore's reggae scene, Scotty P. How you feel, Baltimore? Make some noise! Yeah! Right now I want to bring to the stage Baltimore's own Rhythm House recording artist. Make some noise, Baltimore, we're live! Yeah! Yeah! Let me hear you say yeah! Let me hear you say yeah. yeah. Because that's how it is, that's how it's gonna be. Said your work's gonna run the dance floor, you see. Baltimore people beg you sing for me, I say yeah. Since 1993, Jawworks has been the sound of reggae in a city due north from its inception point of Kingston, Jamaica. As a teenager, Scott Painter, a white kid from the suburbs of Philadelphia, raised Catholic by a single mom with brothers to spare, felt drawn to the music and to the message of groups like the Gladiators, Dennis Brown, and of course, Bob Marley. As a student at Loyola University in Baltimore, Scott shared this love, this passion of the genre with some new friends. And nearly 30 years later, those friends are still together. Jawworks has performed all over the world. They've recorded nine albums and produced countless other projects. They've shared the stage with legends of reggae like Toots and the Natals and Steel Pulse. And they've been an Ocean City staple for decades. Scotty P's voice has range and power. He commands the stage and draws in every person in the crowd. His lyrics can be sweet and romantic, raw and political, or float in the air like a ganja mist. It is a serious litigation, so that when the lawman sees your eyes are red, he'll say, give me all of the ganja, I'll take you downtown and arrest you instead. I've been fortunate to get to know these gentlemen over the years. They're great players, they're smart businessmen, and stand-up guys. Sitting down with the voice of Jawworks was a no-brainer. Hi, Bronson. Great to be with you. Thanks for coming, man. It's nice to see you. Nice, nice to chat. Yeah. So uh, let's start back at the beginning. Jawworks started in 1993. Is that right? Yes. Yes, we were... We were friends in college at Loyola here in Baltimore, and we were in a bar, and we had been playing in open mic nights for a couple of years and playing in our in our dorm rooms for a couple of years, and we got to the point where we had a little repertoire of Bob Marley songs, and 
we gave ourselves the name in, in that spring of 93. How did you guys come up with the name Jowworks? We were uh, big fans of all kinds of reggae artists in college. Um, me, Kevin, and Mike, and Eric, Eric Vincent. And then uh, we, we listened to the Gladiators an awful lot, this reggae harmony group. They had a four-part four harmony structure in their, in their group. And their, the lead singer was Albert Griffiths. So it was oftentimes Albert Griffiths and the Gladiators. And they had a song called Jaw Works that just... It just really permeated, you know, our, our, our area. Once we heard it, we listened to it all the time. You know, like the way that the song is about, like it's talking, the singer's talking about how he's a man of prayer and none of his doings shall ever go wrong. You know, Jai hears him when he cries. Hmm. He's a great meditator. And then he goes on, he's saying, the wicked are out like a roaring lions trying to destroy my sons and daughters and it just sounded like so powerful and you know but the narrator of the song is like jai hear i when i cry you know because i'm a great meditator so i wanted to i wanted to like have that kind of energy when we started playing music i didn't realize you guys started doing open mic nights oh yeah we were in college and they would have these coffee shops at loyola but then really where it busted out was over in belgium you know our junior year at loyola college we went to Belgium for the uh, exchange year, and it was a 10-month program. So you came home for Christmas with your family, but you were there from September to June otherwise. And we, we took our junior year of, of course credits over at the Catholic University of Leuven, which is about a half hour east of Brussels. Hmm. And that's where they brewed Stella in Leuven. So we drank a lot of Stella, and we listened to a lot of reggae and skipped some classes, but we all passed our, our classes that year except for me i i did fail shakespeare it was taught by an oxford professor <laughs> and i skipped too many of his classes and it was an oral exam so the class ended in december but you didn't sit for the exam until june so by june i didn't remember anything and i failed so i had to take 18 credits the fall semester of my senior year back here in baltimore but yeah we oh, yeah. we got into playing music a lot over in europe and we played on the corners in the streets and we, we, we got over our fear of singing and playing in front of people by being absolute strangers over there. No one knew us. Yeah. So who was, who was that, who was in that group right there? That was at the core of Jawworks? Yeah. Kevin Gorman, Mike Hamilton and myself all went to Belgium for our junior year. So we all went with our guitars in tow. And once we got there, we played every day. That's all amazing. the time. So it was the three of you. It wasn't like Brian wasn't there. And no, Brian actually went to Belgium two years after we did. He was a couple of years behind Kevin. Same program. Yeah, he went on the same tour, did the same 10-month program, and he had a great experience, but he wasn't with us. He's following Big Brother. Yeah, big time. <laughs> That's nice. Really so cool. I, d I just had this, uh, this vision of you guys having the, the first rehearsal and like, feeling a click in that first rehearsal, but it sounds like first rehearsal was on the streets of Belgium. Yeah, we, the first time we really played in the street was in Florence, Italy, in front of the, uh, the Duomo there, the big cathedral. Yeah. And we, we just, we finally got the nerve. We had been to some open mics that year in, in Belgium, and a, a, a Dutch guy invited me to an open mic night. And in Leuven, at the Catholic University of Leuven, every faculty department of the university had their own bar. Bronson so the economics bar would have a party on Tuesdays and the philosophy bar was popping on Friday so you would go to certain bars on certain nights for certain specials 
and you got to meet all these different people from all around the world because at Catholic University of Leuven, the town's population swells from like, I don't know, 50,000 normal to like 280,000 during, during the academic year. So there's people from all over Europe, all over Asia and Africa that are all in Leuven. And there we were, like 40 Americans from Loyola in the mix of this big stew of people. And we were playing music and getting on the train whenever we could scrape up enough dough and taking the train somewhere. And it was just a ragamuffin year abroad. It was so much fun. That sounds incredible. I, I love Florence, man. Florence was like a revelation. I spent a week in Florence. Actually, it was not too long after 93. So uh-huh. like 95, I think I was there. And, Such uh, a gorgeous just, city. I, I remember turning right at the, the Statue of David and going down to the river, and there was like this little mini, mini soccer field right there by the river. I don't know if you remember uh-huh. that. And I sat there for like three days and just watched these <laughs> dudes play soccer and drank wine. And just, uh, yeah. Yeah, I have so many place. memories of different places that we went on, on those, those trips. And we spent 10 days in Italy. We did five days in Florence and five in Rome during Easter week. Wow. Yeah, and our and our moderator, Dr. Nakbar, he was a Dutch citizen growing up. He was a Dutch child during the, the occupation by Germany in World War II. Then he emigrated to Belgium years later in his 20s or 30s. Then he came to Baltimore and taught philosophy at Loyola in his 40s. And then in his 50s and 60s, he moderated the uh, study abroad program for Loyola College in Leuven, and he was the director of the program. So mm. he would take us everywhere. Like when you were in Italy with Dr. Nakbar, he was like, all right, well, I'm taking these eight students to dinner tonight. And then the next night he would take another eight or 10, and he would invariably take you to the restaurants that he's been visiting for 30 years. So all the owners knew him by name. Mm. He would take you to these Italian restaurants, Bronson, that didn't have any labels on the wine bottles. It was just yeah. the house wine yeah. from some vineyard that they, the family owned. And it was just so special, you know? That's nice. Yeah, it made you feel like you were a real live grown up when you were twenty one. Yeah, taught you taught you what's kind of important as you get older in life. You know the things that you really find yourself savoring now as a grown man. He introduced us to a lot of those things over there. Yeah, that's great. I I don't know. Maybe it's a cliche, but I, I'm convinced that other countries, you know, kind of have us when it comes to appreciating certain things, whether it's food or wine, cuisine, uh, the arts. Just seems yeah. like people appreciate the arts more, or or in a different way. I can say it more charitably, if you want to be all inclusive of, of sensitive American citizens. But it seems like the arts are a little more loved abroad. Yeah, but I think you kind of tapped on that a second ago when you were talking about as you get older, you sort of appreciate things better. Yeah. The thing that I think we forget as Americans is that we are a young, young country. Yeah, we're a really so, young like, country. Emotionally, we're young. We, we're, we're teenagers compared to Yeah, Europe, you're right. And, you know? So yeah. we're impatient about things, and we're not really good at being present and settling and, you know, like being in the moment. We're not good at that yet. We got, we got yeah. a lot of work to do. Yeah, we haven't acquired that skill set. No, we haven't. So were you singing before you guys started playing together? Like, how did, how did it become, no, how did I it end a, up that you were the singer? I was a guitar player in high school. We had a punk band in high school called Infection in Wilmington, Delaware, and I was the, only the guitar player. I didn't have any desire or courage or urge to sing at that age. But then when I got to Loyola... I was so deeply into reggae music and I was so, um, it was intense. Like I, that's all I listened to for a good couple of years. 
And I really just started singing along with my favorite artists, my favorite songs. And at Loyola, before we went to Belgium, by the end of sophomore year, we were jamming guitar every day in someone's dorm room. And we were singing along with the Bob Marley CDs or the Steel Pulse CDs or the Burning yeah. Spear CDs. And then little by little, like no one ever told me to stop singing along. And I actually started feeling like it, it felt good. And then I heard a couple people say, man, you sound pretty good. And then little by little, Bronson, we started turning the boom boxes off. Yeah. And we just started playing the guitars and singing with no no music playing on a, on stereo, and that was a real like leap of faith to sing without the music behind you. Were you into Dennis Brown back then? Yeah, when? I liked Dennis Brown in high school. I got I got exposed to him in like 1986. Who who exposed? Because that's not that's something I wanted to talk to you about later. But who exposed exposed you to reggae at that age? My brother Tim and my brother Bill were really into reggae. When I was under 10 years old, I remember being seven or eight and hearing Bob Marley in the house. And yeah. I know for a fact that my brother Tim saw Bob Marley at the University of Pennsylvania wow. or Temple, one or the other, in like 79 or 78 before he really was like playing the Spectrum in Madison Square Garden on his last tour before he yeah. died. A couple of years before that, he was playing colleges and venues like that. So my brother Tim saw him. So ever since I was... Um, old enough to know that I loved music. I was into the police. And then I got into Bob Marley through my brother. And like my mom was teaching CCD class for our church on Sundays one year. And I remember one kid was like, how do you listen to that music? You don't even know what they're saying. And I, and I just remember saying like, it sounds cool to me. That's why I love it. It just sounds cool. And little by little, I started learning about what he was singing about. And it was even cooler then because it, it kind of it kind of um, dovetailed with the life that I was living. And I saw, I saw the same things. My mom was a single parent. She divorced my dad and raised five sons. And a lot of the things that I was listening to them sing about, I felt like I wasn't a, a black Jamaican and I wasn't a Rastafarian, but I was like a, a sufferer in my head. I didn't have any, any, any extra money. We didn't have video games. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw a lot of kids that, that had things. I didn't have them. My mom didn't have them. She didn't buy that stuff because she couldn't. And I don't know. That music just resonated with me. And then living in Chester, Pennsylvania, as a little kid, I, I, I was all of a sudden the only white kid in the school for about a year. And that really changed the way I looked at this country and what it felt like to be a minority. So then the reggae kind of all clicked and all the message of Rasta and, you know, uh, empowerment and African identity. Even though I wasn't African, I took to it like a fish in water. I loved it. Mm -hmm. It really spoke to me, you know, and that's how, that's how reggae became such a, a dominant force in my life. And then when I got to Loyola, Kevin and, and Mike and Jar Works, they were listening to punk and bad brains and heavy metal and all kinds of stuff. But I little by little wore them down and got them into reggae. And, and by the time we were end of sophomore year, getting ready to go to Belgium, we were all reggae animals. That's awesome. We would, we would leave parties at Loyola. If they, if they turned our mixtape off and took it out of the stereo, we'd be like, we're out of here. <laughs> we were just such reggae snobs. We just We couldn't get enough of it. So you come back from Belgium after 10 months over there. And you guys decide at that point it's time to officially form a band, or how how did how did that work? That you're all of a sudden playing clubs and and um, and the hottest yeah, thing that, in Baltimore. Yeah, that senior year, we I think we played like two coffee shops on Loyola's campus, and then 
we were out one winter night in February or March of, of 93 and we were like we, we need to we need to make this official and get get a name and start a band and that's when we decided on Jaw Works and we wrote it on a bar napkin <laughs> in Gators on York Road nice and and then by the time we graduated we had finagled our our, our college end of end of school year party at, at the dorm out on the lawn we played a huge party and we just felt like big things were coming our way and we got a, an opportunity to open for Mikey Dread a, a since deceased uh, reggae DJ in Jamaica and also a reggae artist in his own right and Mikey Dread was playing at M- Max's on Broadway hmm. and we got the opening slot for, for like a hundred dollars mm-hmm. and basically we didn't have a keyboard player we were basically a glorified Bob Marley cover band with two out-of-tune guitars, a drummer and a bass player, and me <laughs> wailing away all the Marley tunes that I knew by heart. Mm-hmm. And that was it. That was the start. And we were raw. We were raw, but we, we didn't know that. We were just so happy to be playing. When did Rock join you guys? Rock joined um, that, that summer of 93 and into the fall. And then I left Baltimore because I didn't think that it was it was going anywhere. And I guys had girlfriends or jobs, and I was like, man, the only reason I stayed in Baltimore was for this band. And I was broke, and so I left <laughs> in December of '93 and flew to Hawaii because my brother Will was going through a divorce, and he flew me out there. And I lived in Hawaii for a couple months, and we thought we were going to start a reggae band on Oahu. Mm. But we didn't realize, like, there's only three reggae drummers on the whole island. So <laughs> we auditioned two of them, and both of them wanted all this money. And we are like, well, we're not going to be able to start a reggae band right away. <laughs> and so by, like, March of 94, I'm living in o- Oahu with my brother. And he's doing his army job, and I'm working at Tower Records out of college. And these guys from, from Baltimore, Kevin and Mike, they send me a couple mixtapes on cassettes, and they're... They're not mixtapes. They're actual recordings of rehearsals that they started running. And they said, look, we got rock from, from Uprising and Unity. Mm. And we got Tony Love, this other, this other brother who plays uh, wicked guitar and sings amazing harmonies. And we think if you come back from Hawaii, we'll have, we'll have a vocal trio like the Mighty Diamonds or the Whalers. Yeah. We'll have three vocal harmonies and we'll, we'll be the baddest band ever. So I, I flew home in May of 94 and... Like by July, we had put Feast or Famine out. Let's play a track from Feast or Famine. When did you guys start? Uh, I know for a while you were going to Jamaica, like almost every year, if I remember correctly. You there was a good three or four year stretch, yeah, where we were living the salad days. We were, <laughs> we had gotten connected with some kind of spring break tour company in, in the United States. These oh, college dudes. That's what it was. They they finagled some way for us to get free airfare, free hotel, and free breakfast, lunch, and dinner from Margaritaville for like three weeks in a row. And in exchange, we had to play a show on a Wednesday and a Saturday for their college kid parties 
at Margaritaville. So to us, it was like a cheap, cheap way to go on a working vacation. So we did two shows for free, and in exchange, we got airfare, hotel, and all food and drinks for th- three meals a day. For, you know, for 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 two shows a week. So we did the two shows a week, and we'd do it for two or three weeks each year. Yeah. And then on the other five nights of the week, we were off in Jamaica. So we would play shows at like more Jamaican, uh, yeah, Jamaican frequented establishments on the beach. Like you know, you know, Alfred's and. A risky business when it was alive and and the bus which town is this places negril negril okay yeah that's right it was last yeah. year i love yeah negril. you were there so you know how it is and we would play the two weeks two two shows a week for the spring break crowd and then we would be in the jamaican kind of crowds on the other nights where all the college kids didn't really stray off to but we were there hanging out with the the jamaican musicians and they would invariably very generously let us get up and do a set you know, a couple mm-hmm. tights a week, we, and we wouldn't make any money doing it. Or we would get dinner and some and some red stripe or some some Guinness. But it was more about the the, the validation of having a Jamaican audience give us props and and rate what we were doing as a band and be be accepting of us. I felt like your your Jamaican trips influenced your sound a lot. Like I felt like it. Uh, it. Uh, I remember you guys had a bit of a dance hall. Uh, phase. I don't know if it was phase is the right word, but oh yeah, we were influenced heavily by uh, Jamaican dance hall because just like reggae was the music in the seventies and eighties, in the nineties and the two thousands, dance hall was the popular music in Jamaica. So you'd hear reggae when you go there, but you'd really be dominated by dance hall music in Jamaica. And we would come home with like these mixtapes that we would record off of uh, the radio, Irie FM. We would bring <laughs> yeah. boombox. And, and a brick of 10 blank tapes, and you would record the radio for the whole week or two that you were there on tapes, and you'd come home and you'd listen to these songs in greater detail, and we would end up covering some of them or taking the music from a song and then putting an original lyric on the rhythm that was really hot in Jamaica. Because in Jamaica, in, in the dance hall, a rhythm will be hot, and all the hottest artists will, will voice a song on that one rhythm, and that way when you're in a dance... They'll run eight songs on the same piece of music, but it's eight different vocalists with eight different vocal hooks. And around that time, you guys got hooked up with the USO, right? Yeah, the USO was another great blessing for the band because, you know, we we never realized some of our touring goals, but the USO, actually, more accurately, was the Armed Forces Entertainment. But it was so amazing, man. You know, we went to the top of the world. We went to Greenland. I, I got to fly a C-130 to the North Pole once. wow. Then we did a six-week tour through the South, Southeast, South Pacific, and, and Asia. So we went to Japan, Singapore, Korea, the Marshall Islands, you know, where the, the U.S. and Japan fought over in, in World War II yeah. in the Far East Pacific. And I, I saw Hiroshima, the Peace Park, you know, right where the bomb exploded. I mean, it's just those opportunities took us places musically. But I think more importantly now at 49 years old, being able to take those trips with Armed Forces Entertainment just informed my life as a human being to go and see these places and talk to the people that, that, that are in the Armed Forces and, and the, all the people that serve the country, whether you're on any end of the political spectrum. When you go and entertain people that are in service to the country thousands of miles from their home, it's like such a humbling and just a growing experience. You learn so much about people that aren't, you know, like you or... That, 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 that don't even think about themselves. You know, they're out there putting putting their life on the line, and it's pretty profound. 
before before we have to end our time together, I want to I want to hit the third rail. Yeah, I want to talk to you about religion and politics a little bit because I know that those are two two issues that are that are serious for you. Right? Two of my favorite topics. So so I have a I have a theory. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, my theory is that um, a lot of white people, in particular, discover reggae for the first time in the dorm room or at a yeah. college party, right? Around the spliff. Yeah, exactly. They they hear Bob Marley and they realize that they can dance to it because yeah. anybody can dance to reggae. Yeah. But the thing about that is when you're when you are starting out listening to reggae in the dorm room or whatever, you uh, in the beginning you don't really realize that reggae is is deeper than that. It's got uh, religious uh, elements to it, a, a serious Christian foundation to it. It has a lot of political. I mean, Bob Marley was a revolutionary. He was political. A political animal. Yeah. But can tell us, because um, you're going to know this way better than me, give us a little uh, understanding of uh, Rastafarianism and how reggae um, is influenced by that. Uh, tell us a little bit of Haile Selassie. Like, how, what, what's that? What's the core uh, history of of the religious aspects to reggae? Well, reggae music is always going to be linked with Rastafari because um, Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia at the turn of the 20th century, was coronated the emperor, the king of kings, the lord of lords. Right about now, we're going to talk to you about the king's highway. On the, the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. And if you read any anything in the Bible, like from Revelation all the way back to other books, you can see references to the, the lion of Judah. And they talk about him being Christ returned in, in, in human form again. So when the turn of the century came and Selassie was coronated, you had nations from all around the world. You had the Queen of England bowing at the feet of Haile Selassie, and he was a teenager when he was crowned. So around the same time, you had some millennial um, religious figures, and uh, you had some fundamentalist preachers in Jamaica. They were starting to preach about a black king, a black, a black god. Mm. And all of a sudden, across the world in Africa, there is a man who is crowned the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. So you had certain people. I think uh, Leonard Howe was one of one of the founding member, founding fathers of Rastafari. They started prophet, prophesizing that Selassie was was the Christ returned. And then Marcus Garvey, with his entire um, Black Star Liner and Universal Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA, Marcus Garvey was preaching like, "Go back to Africa. We want to repatriate to our homeland. We were taken from Africa. We want to go back to Africa." And we are kings in Africa. And then there, behold, lo and behold, there is a new king crowned in Africa. So Marcus Garvey had, had a lot to do with Jamaicans 
going towards Rastafari and, and you know, the early founders of, of the entire um, African mo awareness movement in the Western Hemisphere, I think we're all kind of kindred spirits, but all coming from different parts of the diaspora. People always ask, are you Rastafari? And I, no, I don't keep all the tenets, but I'm, I'm as much Rasta as I am Buddhist. I was raised Catholic, but I don't observe any one church, so... I think you know the, the spiritual path that people go on is is it's so it's so interesting if you're open to it. But I think a lot of people in this country they think, well, religion is not something I'm going to talk about or politics. So yeah, right, you know, I don't have time for that. Yeah, that, that gets me in trouble on a regular basis. Yeah, you grew up Catholic. You went to Loyola's Jesuit, right? Yeah, Jesuit College. I went to a high school in Wilmington called Salesianum, which was taught by the Oblates of St. Francis de Sales. So you had a real religious upbringing. I did, and, and I learned a lot about theology and the Bible and philosophy from high school. Yeah. And then, you know, when we were in Italy, Bronson, I, I saw the Vatican on Easter week. We had an audience with uh, Pope John Paul II, and wow. us and 5,000 other people were in this auditorium, and I saw little girls knocking over elderly nuns trying to get to the center aisle to touch his garment as he left the room. Wow, that's not So I was pretty disillusioned nice. at that age and really into Rasta and be like, this this Vatican is so corrupt. And yeah. a lot of Rastas burn the Pope, you know, figuratively all the time. They say, burn down the Vatican because they look at the Roman, Roman Catholic Church as a villain. as like vampires, you know, yeah. sucking native populations dry of their of their resources and and their souls You know how churches always have the billboards out front with the, the pithy sayings mm -hmm. as you're driving by? Mm -hmm. and this one, it was spring, and I was out there trying to lose some weight walking, and the church billboard said, Spring has sprung. Walk with the king. <laughs> and I had my headphones on and listened to some reggae, and I just started getting these ideas in my head on the walk, and I kept walking and walking and walking, and by the time I got home, I had the lyrics all written out. Wow. You know, it was like it was channeled. You know how certain artists talk about, I didn't write that. Yeah. It just came through me like yep. that. That song was like a, it was a, it was a, a divine imperative. I, I didn't write it. I just recorded it. Um, you're also uh, very outspoken um, on social media with politics, and the we are in troubling times. I guess maybe is the right word, but definitely in dynamic times. Um, politics, especially in the states, uh, is is a pendulum in many ways. Right? We go back and sure. forth. And and some would argue that the swing that we have now is way too far to one direction <laughs> that sure. it is maybe healthy for us as a nation. But if it if it is a pendulum, then maybe we're swinging back the other way. I, I don't I don't know if you subscribe to that. But what do you how do you where do you see the trajectory of this country right now? Are we are we do we have are, are we going to get better? Is do we is change possible? For us, man, I, 
I'm an eternal optimist, but I am, I'm fighting cynicism every day, you know, because I could easily throw my hands up and be like this place. And I do almost on a daily basis. Like you say on social media, you know, when I was single, social media was like a, an outlet. It was a, it was a, a friend in a, in a lonely time. As far as where we're going in, in the United States, I, I, I think it's a toss up, man. I think if, if, if the moral arc bends towards justice and, and it bends slowly, but it does bend towards justice, then I can believe in that pendulum theory and I can say we're going to have a renaissance just like Europe did mm-hmm. through the dark ages and the plagues. And then they had the renaissance and the age of reason. And I, I think it has to happen. Otherwise, you're just going to have blood in the streets. And I don't think anybody wants a full scale revolution in this country because look at what the sporadic outbursts of of frustration like they the so-called riots and Mm -hmm. the uprisings in la in 92 or in baltimore in 2015 or when the police bombed the move house in philadelphia when i was 15 there's just there's certain things that in 2020 we're we're not really supposed to accept anymore and yet there's things that we still see happen and that people have to accept and they can't accept it anymore so I don't know what's going to happen, man. I think people need to have some kind of spiritual awakening, though. Like, this country has a long and rich history of awakenings, spiritual awakenings, when religious fervor would sweep the land. And you can look through history in the United States where this happened. And some of the biggest um, progressive changes in our in our society happened as a result of these waves of progressive thought and, and of, of moral and religious awakenings. So... My brother, Rob, said it years ago. He's like, we need a soul revolution in this country. Like, we don't need a violent one. We need a soul revolution, Mm -hmm. a revolution of the soul where people are curious about other people again. People are not fearful of others. They're curious. Uh, You need a soul revolution in this country where, where it's not okay for someone who was born a millionaire to just become a billionaire now. And he never really has to put a day of work in his life. Mm -hmm. And yet... You got a guy that works 70, 80 hours a week at a physical job and he's making 400 bucks a week. Like, it's just not, it's not sustainable. I guess I'm just praying for the day where, where the dominant cultural influence is love and, and togetherness and, and taking care of people instead of, let me get my family squared away and fuck everybody else. Yeah. My, my fear is that, uh, with the pendulum theory, which I, I believe is true, is that I worry that maybe we're not even to the other extreme yet. We're not to the extreme swing yet. Oh, that's scary. It is. And and if you, <clears throat> again, if you look at history, that when the pendulum swings, th- there are riots in the streets. There are the, the everyone, it everything blows up to rebuild. I mean, we have to have this sort of, we have to burn it all down almost to start over, which obviously I don't want to happen, but, but that's my yeah. fear. And I'm hoping that we can avoid that, but I don't, I don't know. I, I I'm like you. I'm an eternal optimist. Um, yeah, I am too. I I refuse to to give in. I, I have hope. My my hope um, uh, comes from seeing my kids. Um, yeah. And working with my my kids are 18 to 15 now, and I've spent their whole schooling lives volunteering tons in the schools and getting to know a lot of kids. And when you do that, you, you see these kids and you're like, yeah, there is a future. Like some of these kids these days are just 
I man, way sharper than I was when, when I was their age. <laughs> oh, right, big time. There, I I see evolution in my nieces. In your nieces. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of nieces, and I don't have any children of my own, but my brother's children are very intelligent, and it's like they're universally smart. And and you have seen kids a lot more than a lot of people because you've been teaching a ton. Yeah. 2007, you moved to Philly for a couple of years. and Yeah, I left Job Works because I was done. I was not happy making music, and I went to Philly where I grew up, and I became an assistant kindergarten teacher. So I wasn't certified to teach, but I became pretty much a teacher with on-the-job training uh, early on. And then I started working with before and after care. So I was dealing with kids from kindergarten through fifth grade, and then I moved up to the middle school. So I was doing before and after care from K through eighth grade, and then I was doing kindergarten enrichment. And little by little, my guitar started creeping into everything I did at work with the kids. So I moved back to Baltimore in 2014, and I was trying to figure out a way to work with children in Baltimore. But I can be honest and tell your listeners that I was as as inundated and as assimilated I was in the reggae community and the Caribbean community in Baltimore all those years. I was still afraid as a white man to go teach in Baltimore City because I thought that these kids would be too crazy and they wouldn't want to listen to me, mm-hmm. and I would get clowned. So I didn't do it. Mm. And then by chance, I met someone who was an artist. I can't even remember which artist friend it was. And they're like, I want to hip you to something that I'm doing. And they brought me to a Young Audiences of Maryland function. Hmm. And I, I did this uh, weekend seminar. And I went and got a residency at an elementary school. And all of a sudden, I was writing up lesson plans hmm. hand in hand with a, with a certified teacher. So basically, what I learned how to do was to bring arts into the classroom, and they call that arts integration. Basically, I will bring my art form, which is music and songwriting, into the lesson plan that they wanted to do for that week, whether it's math, uh, literary arts. I think it's going to be the salvation of, of public education in America because yeah. you need this, man. This this arts education, this this piano lesson that your kid took or the guitar lessons that I took, it's a fact that it... it it enhances your learning in every other subject. So I, that's what I've been doing lately. And that gives me a lot of hope seeing, seeing the children that I work with. Yeah. That's what I was. That's what I wanted to say. I, I did, uh, for five years, I was a technical director for a middle school theater company and I had 30 kids on my crew every year. And we taught these kids every single thing that they needed to do. We gave them the saws yeah. and said, don't cut off your legs, you know, basically <laughs> like go, go for it. And uh, at, at the end of every show, you know, it's like three intense months getting ready for a show. We, we were serious about this stuff. At the yeah. end of every show, I'm like, man, I'm going to miss these kids. These, these kids give right. me hope. They give me confidence that the world is going to be a better place because I've yeah. seen, I see it in their eyes, you know? Yeah. And I'm working in Baltimore City, which is, you know, about 98% black children. And then maybe the rest of the children might be Latin American or maybe Middle Eastern Mm -hmm. refugees. Nowadays, you got Syrians living in Baltimore City. So it's really amazing to see the most marginalized people in our country do what they do on a daily basis with, with, with the work that we do. And you hear such a bad rap about city schools and Baltimore City this and teachers that. And these parents this, and these kids are out of control. But all these children want is to learn. And all they want is a stable environment. Yeah. And if we could provide that for the children of, of our today, 
then it would be a different country. I think what makes me worry and what makes me fearful is that there's a lot of people in our country right now that have no use, no interest, and no love, and no empathy for these children in Baltimore City. And I don't understand that. Like, is your life that miserable? Are you that are you that disappointed with your lot in life that you can look at these children and be like, well, they don't, they're not my problem. One of the solutions, I think, is that we need to have more wraparound services in the school. If the school is oh, really yeah. going to be our community center, which, it, which is yeah. what it is, then we yeah. need to be able to give these kids opportunities to eat, <laughs> you know? To, to our summer program, even though it was virtual, it still provided breakfast and lunch. Yeah, that's great. To 12 or 2,200 campers this summer. Young audiences of Maryland and Baltimore City schools. And a lot of these families need that food. Yeah. So if the pendulum swing in the correct direction, or, you know, maybe correct's the wrong word, but if it's swinging the other yeah. way, then um, maybe one of the things that we can do is highlight the fact that because of COVID, we have seen firsthand in ways we hadn't really been paying attention to of of how much these wraparound services are important for so many families and how they yeah. are vital for the stability of our community as a whole you know not just the people who have kids in elementary school right right but everybody you talk about like you know defund the police versus uh more police well for the last 40 years in this country, the police and the DEA and every other law enforcement agency's budgets have grown exponentially, Right. you know, to the point where they, they devour everybody else's money. So they, maybe they need to come up with a new slogan, but the idea behind defund the police is pretty solid. Like, let's, let's get some more social workers in elementary schools. <laughs> yeah. You know, let's get some more counselors in high school. Let's, let's get some more um, career placement experts in middle and high school. Let's get some more kids in a trade school. Instead of trying to sell them on a, a college dream that, you know, you look at colleges now, they're closed and they're offering virtual services and they're not cutting their tuition at all. So all those, all those Ritz and Glitzy dream campuses you, that you can't even use, you're still paying for them. Yeah. So how are you uh, coping through all this coronavirus? It took me a minute to get my feet underneath me and get on unemployment. It was a long process in the state, but I'm grateful that I was, I was able to get unemployment and then, um, Young Audiences of Maryland has the Summer Arts and Learning Academy every summer. So this was my fifth year that I worked with them. So for the five weeks that I was drawing a paycheck from Young Audiences, I, I just filed that I was earning that week. And, you know, next week I'll be filing again that, nope, I didn't earn this week. So I'm a little worried coming off of the summer camp. And yeah. summer camp's a great experience and it pays pretty well. So I'm able to put a little bit of that money away for the future. But they say this fall and winter, Bronson, are going to be some tough times in America, man. And what's next for Jawworks? Are you guys working on some Jawworks is uh, getting ready to put out a dub, a dub version of the Believe album. So the entire nice. album Believe came out in 2016. We had uh, dub mixes of all those songs made at that time. So we're putting that out soon, sometime this summer or fall. And we have about eight songs of new studio material that that is waiting to come out too. But we got interrupted with that process with COVID. So. I'm not sure how we're going to finish that project or whether we're just going to round it off at seven or eight songs and put it out as is. We're, we're going to determine that. But it's been tough not taking shows because, believe it or not, Bronson, there's still people that are trying to book the band. But I, I, I kind of told myself back in March or April, I was like, you know what? This year's a wash. Yep. Just just write it off. When, when Secrets canceled 24 dates <laughs> for Jaw Works, I was like, all right, you know, just just write this year off, dude. It'll be easier to get over it if you just say... 
I'm not holding out hope for any shows this year. Man, I love talking to you. It's been a blast. Thanks, Bronson. This has been so much fun talking with you. I uh, can't wait till this is all done and I can see you guys live again. I still want to put the jazz vocal album out with you, man. Yeah, well, we, we got to talk about that. I'm telling you, man. <laughs> You're ready, I know. I know. I'm, I'm really ready. I'm always trying to do shit that's different. And to do an album with you, a bass player, and a, and a guy with brushes on a drum set, and me singing would be some fucking magic shit. <laughs> That sounds fun to me. I'm telling man. you. Let's do it. I think it would be so cool. Let's do it. Cool, man. Well, Give thanks. my best to Deb, man. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. For more information on Scotty P, you can visit his website, scottpaintermusic.com. Painter is spelled P-A-Y-N-T-E-R. And of course, you can find Jawworks at jawworks.com. I knew you guys would figure that one out. I'm, as always, at bronsonhoover.com. Again, that's not rocket science. Hey, uh, next time, my guest is going to be my old buddy, Groove. Groove has traveled the world as a lighting director and as a roadie. He is a character. I can't wait to share his story with you. And I will talk to you guys next time. Brought to you by Burp Media. That was a good one. We invite you to become a supporter at patreon.com slash burpmedia. Supporters will have access to our online VIP room, which will include stories, photos, and interview extras, and bits from the cutting room floor. If you would like to become an official sponsor, contact us via our website at burp.com. Dot media.